On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Han Luen, Kotzer Comline, about Augustine and the will. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is the will, what does Augustine think about the will, why has the will been such a difficult topic when it comes to Augustine, does his thoughts on this mature over time, does that make it more difficult, how do later thinkers, particularly Thomas and the Reformers, receive him, modify, adapt his approach, how do things like baptism affect the will and Augustine's thought? Are there implications for those who reject his views on baptism? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And if you've listened for any amount of time, then you know that one way we try to describe what that looks like is by encouraging, cultivating, and sort of promoting an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Uh, we think that the Christian life should be uh, one of thinking, of using our minds, but we think that also means that you should be using it virtuously, uh, caring about the other person, and uh, arguing in a persuasive manner and not just in a way to try to make score points and do takedowns. Though we should be critical in our approach to thinking. We shouldn't just let bad arguments slide by, but there's an appropriate way to handle those sort of disputes and discussions in a, in a respectful way. Now, I'm thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Han Luen, Concert Comline. This is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to be talking about Augustine and the will. because I mean, anybody who's writing on Augustine, I want to talk to. But anybody who's writing on Augustine and the will, I need to talk to because they, they have clearly signed themselves up for a lot of punishment because this is such a huge topic to cover. And Dr. Comline has done it so well, so I, I, I'm thrilled to talk about it. And I'll tell you this. If you don't know, her book is available in paperback from Oxford. So that tells you one thing. The book must be amazing because Oxford never puts their books out in paper book back. So if they've done that, that tells you that you need to go buy a copy of it. So this is going to be a lot of fun talking about Augustine and the Will. Before we jump into it, uh, Hanluan, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself, where you teach, those sort of things, and maybe what got you interested in thinking about Augustine and the Will in particular? Mm, sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Jordan, for the invitation to talk with you on this podcast. I'm really excited about your mission on the podcast and also this conversation. So I teach at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. So there are two Western seminaries and we're the one on Lake Michigan. I've been here for almost 10 years now and I teach mainly early Christian theology. I teach church history and also systematic theology as well. And yeah, what got me into studying Augustine and this topic in particular. Um, I would say in seminary, I, st I embarked on studying Augustine and really got excited about that part. And then during my doctoral work, I wrote this one essay for a class on Augustine's late anti-Aryan writings. And when I was writing that essay, I noticed that he seemed to be presuming that there were two wills in Jesus Christ, a, both a human will and a divine will. And I thought that was really interesting because I had associated that with Maximus the Confessor, who doesn't come till later. So I wrote this paper about that. And then basically, um, due to discernment along with my advisor, Brian Daly, decided to write a book on the will, more broadly speaking, the human will in Augustine's thought, not 
um, just Jesus Christ's human will, though that's an important part of the picture, I think. But this thing called the will, more broadly speaking, in Augustine. <laughs> so that's sort of where it came from, a term paper in my doctoral studies. I, I always like to hear the origin stories of different things. It's always so cool <laughs> to, to find out where it first started. So tell me a little bit for those who might be new to the discussion of the will. Just give me that baseline. What are we talking about when we're discussing mm. the will? And then I want to know, it seems like some people like to say that Augustine invented our concept of the will. Is that true or not? Mm, mm, okay. Yeah, well, these are great questions. They're also very contested questions. Even the basic question, what is the will for Augustine, is something that people have different ideas about. There are a number of scholars who think that the will is already in Augustine a kind of faculty. And other scholars really resist that way of thinking. Augustine in one of his early writings, gives us a quite broad definition of the will. He says it's a movement of the soul with nothing forcing it. Now that's in his earliest phase. So I would say that in his subsequent thinking, that definition gets refined a little bit. He still sees it as a movement of the soul, but the that second part of the definition that it has nothing forcing it, that changes a little bit in the sense that there are constraints on the will that take on a greater significance over time for him. So the way that that's described, tell me this, I I am very interested in sort of like classical disputes. And you mentioned like the two wills, divine and human nature, the divine will and the human will. Hmm. I, I am curious, Augustine's pretty strong, I think, on the doctrine of divine impassibility. How, how would that, or immutability as well, how would that function with the idea of movement? being sort of part and parcel of what it means to have a will? Yeah, Um, that's a great question. So I think um, your question is targeting the divine will more specifically. And I think that it's possible for a a will to move without being passively moved by an external force. And I would imagine that that's something um, along the lines of what Augustine would say, (laughs) if answering that question from you, because the divine will... Um, is active and will act on others and involves movement, but not um, is not passively susceptible to external influence that would control it. That makes sense. Got it. So when I think about Augustine, why is his thought on the will, why is it typically thought to be so difficult? Is this in part due to his own maturation and development? I still remember one of my friends, Benjamin Quinn, who did his work on Augustine, mentioning, we were reading, what's the new book? Um, I can't, uh, the Augustine Way by Josh Chetro and Mark Allen. Ooh. And as, as we were discussing, just a reading group, we were discussing it, and he made a sort of an interesting comment that, I'm not an Augustine scholar, so I had no idea, but just sort of like talking about like, well, you might be ignoring some of the developments that go on in Augustine's life. And I'm like, mm. I didn't know there were developments. So is this part of why it's so hard? Mm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's such a great question. Yeah, I think that is one of the main reasons it's so difficult to pin Augustine down. And I mentioned earlier this how, how there's a lot of difference of opinion on how Augustine would even define the will. And I think a lot of those boil down to folks reading Augustine out of a center in different periods of his writings. And there does tend to be a general pattern where philosophers will tend to privilege his earlier writings, and then theologians tend to read Augustine more out of the center of his later writings. 
and a different picture emerges from each set. I do think they're related, that they're not <clears throat> opposed to each other, but a lot of confusion can happen when people are drawing on different writings from different phases of Augustine, and it's not clear then how they relate to each other. Okay. So, yeah, I would say that's a major, a major factor for sure. Now, when it comes to Augustine's doctrine of providence, does, does that fit at all with his concept of the will or free will in particular? Mm. You know, I do think, I do think that they're actually positively related. I mean, I would even say his doctrine of predestination more Mm. specifically is positively related to his account of free will, but he doesn't, um, have the, the same understanding of freedom that everyone would. For example, okay. late in his life, he's debating with Julian of Aclanum, and for him, freedom of choice is really important to having free will. Whereas for Augustine, choice isn't essential for having free will. And also, causality on the part of God operating on our wills, to use terminology that became important later of this operating terminology, that doesn't unnecessarily undermine the integrity of human agency and human freedom in willing. So what would be essential for a human to be willing in a free way? Mm, Great question. So um, let me give you a differentiated answer to that question. I think for the early Augustine, he would, he would have more in common with say like a Julian of Aclanum or someone who emphasized choice and the ability to, move between different options. He talks about the will as a hinge. But for the late Augustine, it's really alignment with God's will and what God wants that's going to bring us deeply satisfying, genuine freedom. And it also has to be, um, freedom, freedom would be about being able to do what we want to do yeah. um, more than being able to choose between a variety of alternatives. So then would the later Reformed tradition, do you feel like they're picking up more properly on Augustine and their emphasis on how, what it means to have free will than other traditions? I think so. I think so. I didn't come to Augustine um, having looked intensively at these issues in the Reformers, really. So it wasn't, although I am myself Reformed, for sure. (laughs) Um. I wasn't so much coming to him with specific questions about how he fit the Reformed tradition. They Really, I was focusing on even more basic yeah. elementary questions, just like, what is he trying to say? But that said, I do think, as a Reformed person, um, there's a lot in his theology that really resonates with later categories and points of emphasis in the Reformed tradition, even though he's different and approaches yeah. things in his own context. That makes sense. So yeah. when, oftentimes when it comes to discussions, I don't want to just spend all our time on the freedom of the will, but mm. when it comes to this topic, what always ends up coming up is Pelagius, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, those sort of things. Is there Are there any main misconceptions that we should be aware of when we're thinking about Augustine's interaction with, with Pelagius and Pelagianism? I think so, yeah. And this is a really interesting area because it's really um, being debated in a renewed kind of way in Augustinian studies currently because of a book Ali Bonner wrote called The Myth of Pelagianism. Mm. So she's coming at it from the side of, 
hey, look, the way these Pelagian controversies have been received has resulted in um, a misunderstanding of Pelagius. And while I certainly wouldn't agree with a lot of what she says, I do think there are certain caricatures of Pelagius that we've inherited. For example, we might think of him as someone who's just doesn't have much room for grace at all in his theology. But actually, he does talk about grace quite a bit, and he does have a robust understanding of grace. It's just a different kind of understanding than what Augustine thinks. But I would also say that there are some caricatures of Augustine that have emerged from these controversies. I think some people think, for example, that he's really... um, just resigned to human beings being really sinful all the time and doesn't Mm -hmm. think there's much of a point in trying to be better. Um, But if we look at his sermons, we definitely see a strong emphasis on reform and improvement and progress and gradual advancement. These are things that we would typically associate more with a perspective of, of someone like Pelagius. So I think, it, yeah, you're, the answer to your question, I would say yes, uh, on both sides. I think there are um, ways that the lens of that debate has reinforced certain caricatures. And what would you say is the best way to not be susceptible to those caricatures? Mm. Ooh, wonderful question. Well, um, I think it's helpful to read these thinkers in writings that aren't from the context of the polemic of the Pelagian controversy. I would disagree with Ali Bonner in that I think um, some of Augustine's quotations of Pelagius can still be useful for discerning what he thought. But I also think um, it is helpful to look at some of the other writings that are perhaps less often consulted. So he has, Pelagius has this work called um, Letter to Demetrius, and it's not written to Augustine, not from really the Pelagian controversy at all, but it gives us a really, um, like, we can see the whole writing, how he develops his thought over the course of this letter, and get a picture of his thinking that way. Okay. And then for Augustine, on his part, um, we can also look at his sermons, which are not, I mean, some of them have polemical threads running through them for sure, but they're not from the heat of controversy against Pelagius. And then we can see some of these other aspects coming to the fore as well. Cool. So when I think about Augustine and his concept of the will, how is that picked up in later periods? I mean, I think in my context, Thomas Aquinas is pretty big, hot Mm. name right now. So like, how is he interacting with that? Mm -hmm. Other medievals or later Mm -hmm. reformers, are they, are they just picking up Augustine's doctrine and then just saying, this is it? Are Mm. they modifying it? Are they adapting Mm. it? Are they Mm. completely changing it? Well, how's that sort of reception history go? Oh, what a huge, wonderful question, which I'll just sort of dip into. But it's also reminding me, at the beginning, you asked me two questions, and I never answered the t- second one about whether he inv- Augustine invented yeah. the notion of the will. So maybe I can wrap that into this as well. Yeah. Um, well, maybe Thomas is sort of an interesting case. Um, I think it's so fascinating how he rediscovered a lot of Augustine's late writings in his own lifetime, and that really informed his own reflections on grace, because he's known as, um, rightly, as a 
key figure for Roman Catholic theology. And so I'm not sure the first thing that pops into mind when people think of Thomas more generally is, oh, he has this really robust doctrine of grace, but he does. Um, and I think a lot of that is because of Augustine's influence on him. On the other hand, I don't think Aquinas is just repeating what Augustine says and would agree with him about everything. Um, certainly, Aristotle is more important for Thomas than for Augustine. So I think scholars have scholars have said that he sort of takes this theological notion of will from Augustine and combines it with this Aristotelian background and then comes up with this new perspective himself. So I think um, that's an aspect of his contribution. And then also he's just much, much more precise about like the terminology, <laughs> you know, like the different kinds of grace. <laughs> There's so many different kinds of grace, operative, cooperative, and um, dif different, different specific terminology for dividing up grace into different types, which is not really something Augustine does. Mm. Um, I have a friend who, uh, David Burkhart Jansen, who recently wrote an essay I was reading for him um, on how th this notion of prevenient grace, so prevenient and subsequent grace, it's sometimes attributed to Augustine, and he's saying we should be careful about assuming that the way he's thinking about this is similar to the later categories. Augustine is just not so systematic and neat and tidy about how he's categorizing all these things. So I think that applies to the will and grace's impact on the will as well so yeah okay so that's what i would say about thomas just as a brief response to this very big question about yeah. how augustine is received subsequently in the tradition and then back to your question about did he invent the notion of the will to that now you said i think did he or didn't he well yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know i'm really hard pressed i would i think i would just finally need to say yes and no I think that um, I would disagree with a lot of folks who have tried to argue that um, what Augustine said is is anticipated in the Stoics, and he's okay. basically just giving us a reheated Stoicism that's maybe even like uh, less less sharply defined than previously. I don't think that's right. I think what he has his view is just so tied to the biblical story, you can't properly understand what he thinks about the will without reference to the Christian story, creation, fall, redemption, eschaton. So I think vis-a-vis -vis earlier thinkers from beyond the Christian tradition, I think that there is something really new about what he has to say. But I would also say maybe he's what he, his contributions are less new than we think vis-a-vis -vis earlier thinkers in the Christian tradition. Okay. Because I think he's building on, say, Ambrose, Cyprian, people before him, even reflections on the divine will, something you brought up earlier in our conversation. He's building on these conversations and how he develops the will. That makes sense. Now, here, here's a question uh, that I, I often, before I interview people, I, I share with a couple of different people like, hey, I'm interviewing this person on this topic. Is there anything you want me to ask? <laughs> and a bunch of people, one person asked this and a bunch of people said, that's an awesome question. So oh, hopefully this will be, be fun. So on baptism, does mm -hmm. baptism, his view of baptism in particular, does that affect uh, mm -hmm. the will and his thought? 
Um, are there implications that we might have if we reject his views on baptism for how we understand the will? I think this is a really interesting question. Yeah. Um, so it's, I don't think there's a, a simple answer to this. I think that for sure, baptism is something that strengthens the will and um, has an impact on it. That he's Augustine is a paedo-baptist, so for sure he thinks that um, ideally people will be baptized as infants, although he himself wasn't, which is interesting to think about. So in that case, he talks about how the believing community, their willing and loving through baptism affects an individual's willing. So there's that element. Um, But it's also interesting that for him, there's a strong emphasis on conversion as well. And I don't think that he would want to reduce what happens in conversion to the sacrament of conversion that is baptism. There's two distinct things. In fact, he says that in one place. He says there's, um, so the baptism is one thing and then the conversion of the heart is another and salvation involves both. So I, there are elements of his thinking. I mean, his teachings on paedo-baptism, which goes back to his doctrine of original sin, that's very controversial. It always has been. I think a lot of people will disagree with that. But I think his understanding of baptism's effect on strengthening the will, maybe even its relation to conversion, is something that might sort of pitch a broader tent than we might think of when we're first approaching him in terms of his paedo-baptism approach. So this has me thinking now about just the concept of virtue in general. Mm. And from what I understand of Augustine, sort of like he seems to think that everything that is not like a sort of like a Christian act would be like, would be a vice, you know, a splendid vice of sorts. Mm. You could tell me if I'm Mm. wrong, wrong in this sort of analysis or this Mm. broad brush explanation. Mm. I'm wondering if he has these sort of like, there's baptism and then there is a conversion moment. Can you have virtue in between these two <laughs> periods? Mm, mm. That's a great question. And even, yeah, to, to extend your question further in the, in that same trajectory that you're setting here, even to someone who hasn't experienced conversion yeah. can there be pagan virtue, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I think first of all, you're, understanding that you have is correct in that he thinks ultimately actions that are not oriented toward love of God aren't going to be virtuous in the fullest sense. But I once heard a paper by someone named Catherine Chambers, who I recently saw has a book that's come out on Augustine related to virtue, (laughs) um, which might be interesting to, to look up. I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but I heard a paper in which she distinguished between um, certain good works that are good in themselves and then good works in Augustine that are good in an ultimate sense. And so I think that fits with his broader broader perspective too, that it's true that ultimately works, good works have to be performed 
with the final end of loving God and worshiping God to be good in the deepest, truest sense. But there is a sense in which Caterus Paribus, you know, helping out someone who's needy or poor is a good thing to do, assuming all other things are equal. So he does seem to carve out in his thinking room to acknowledge a kind of uh, this worldly inherent goodness to certain actions, even if they aren't ultimately indexed to love of God. Okay, that that makes sense. I I'm tracking with that. I know I I've got I don't know I guess too many evaluative judgments about this question. I'm like, Ooh, does that work? Okay. Or do, mm. but I want to think. You know, mm. what does Augustine say and think mm-hmm. um, before I want to think evaluatively. Mm. Now, mm-hmm. how much do you think Augustine's anthropology more generally is influencing his concept of the will, or is he developing this in a, sort of a vacuum of sorts? Not like a total vacuum, but like is his I mean, is he a platonic dualist or something like that? And does that potentially impact how he's thinking about the will? So I think um, Augustine's larger anthropology is also a bit of a moving target, even like the will is. So that makes this question also a little complicated. But I think that we see them developing together. So earlier on, he has more of a tendency perhaps to see the soul and the body in a more platonic kind of way in that they're maybe not so intimately related. They're separable and maybe a stronger hierarchy. I think there's always a a hierarchy between spiritual and material for Augustine. We can't escape that, but I think it's even stronger in the earlier Augustine. And then through his exegesis of the Psalms, especially he emphasizes this formula, una persona. Hubertus Drobner is a scholar who's done work on this. And and basically, over time, he comes to see the soul-body unity in the human being as closer and closer, united in, in one person. And I think his conception of the will might be related. I haven't really quite thought about these things in this way before since he, um, before you ask this question. Um, But the will itself, even though it's a movement of the soul, is something that implicates the whole person. The will has to do with, and this perhaps gets back to your question of a definition, the will for Augustine in his mature period is a movement of the soul that reflects the intentionality of the entire human being. So it's distinct from just the intellect. It's not just, oh, this is the right thing to do. I know this is the right thing to do. It's distinct from also emotions. Um, It's not just like, oh, I feel I want to do this, but it's some kind of like intentional commitment of the whole person, mind and body. So I think in a way, the will actually has this integrative function in his anthropology, now, whether that's being caused by larger anthropological concerns yeah. or impl- implicating them, it's hard to say. Probably some kind of circular process. So you mentioned emotions. How, is, how are emotions distinct from the will? Are they like some sort of like subspecies of the will? Or what, what is, mm. where does that fit in? Mm. Yeah. Oh, um, well, one thing he does talk about is the relationship of 
love and the will more specifically. So to that, I can say he in one place says uh, the will is like a very, a very strong love. But I think they're distinct in that we could feel certain emotional pulls or tendencies, yet decide on a voluntary basis to reject them and to go in a different direction. So this elusive thing called a will is somehow able to wrap these emotions into itself and adjudicate over them in some sense. It's difficult to say. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, we uh, you've mentioned, I think, the intellect and then uh, sort of like the voluntary language. And it makes me think of sort of the the categories of intellectualist and voluntarist. Does he fit into either one of these? I mean, he, I, mean I imagine he doesn't fit neatly into one. But mm. like, where is he leaning if he's if he had to pick one for, you know, this is my team? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think... I, I doubt very many people would put him in the intellectualist camp. Um, I, I sort of shy away from wanting to label him with the categ- later category of voluntarism. <laughs> but I think maybe by process of elimination, that one might be a little closer. Certainly, he's got a really strong emphasis on the divine will and the human will being something that's related to that. And the flourishing of the, of the human will, the goodness of the human will really being indexed to what God wills. Um, but I don't think that's for him something arbitrary in relation to the natural order in the world that we know either. So not a neat fit with yeah. voluntarism either. <laughs> so you mentioned early on when you sort of were talking about just how you got interested in this topic, Maximus, thinking Maximus is later concept of two wills. Augustine, you're reading here, has this concept of two wills. Would you say that Augustine has a well-developed account of Christ having two wills in comparison to Maximus to where Maximus isn't saying anything original, really? Uh, Um, I would would say that Augustine does have a full-fledged doctrine of two wills in Christ up and running. It takes him a while to develop it. It's something that grows and develops over time but yes he does you can find it in so many words in especially his expositions of the psalms that he will speak of two wills in christ there's a human will and there's a divine will that said i do i wouldn't say that um maximus doesn't add anything new i think there are some really interesting um spins that he puts on it and he he focuses in more on that issue for augustine it's sort of just like it comes up on the side ad hoc when he's yeah. preaching. So uh, I don't, I don't know if you know this answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Two wills. Is this something that's sort of like in the water, in the air that the, you know, the, the Nicene fathers are breathing to where that's just sort of like a standard way to think about Christ? No, I don't think it is. I think mm-hmm. um, it's sort of a, a, a unusual thing that Augustine will describe it in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and he does so really clearly. So, yeah, uh, Demetrius Bathrellos has a um, a book, I think, where he talks about the extent to which some earlier thinkers seem to anticipate Maximus and 
um, I think one one thing you can see in some earlier figures before Augustine, if I recall correctly, is that the human will of Christ can sometimes be seen as sort of adversative, like working against the divine will. But yeah. in Augustine's more mature phases, he's closer to Maximus and that he would see the two more in harmony, whereas earlier on, he seems more similar to some of those earlier thinkers. But definitely, I would say he stands out in more strongly and clearly anticipating Maximus than do thinkers who preceded him. Very interesting. So you've got a chapter on Christ and the will, agony in the garden. Mm-hmm. I, I This sort of section, I think, comes up quite frequently in a lot of discussions and debates that I see, at least even currently. I'd love for you to pe- unpack that just a little bit to explain what's what, what does Augustine think is going on there fundamentally. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Um, So I think that Christ is actually hugely important to Augustine's understanding of the will. And this is something that hasn't come up as much in previous treatments of Augustine on the will. And it's one way where I think his theological perspective just sheds so much light because he sees Christ willing as paradigmatic for human willing. Mm. He calls Christ the most illustrious light of predestination and grace and talks about how even... Christ's good willing is something that's purely affected by grace. Um, and yet, even even Christ has this very human, gritty struggle um, in the garden where he, it's, I think it's also beautiful that that happens in a garden, just like Augustine's conversion in Milan happens in a garden. There's some similarities there. And um, we see in Christ this, struggle to align his own will with God, but ultimately that's where he comes down. Yeah. So you've mentioned several times uh, his commentary on the Psalms. Mm. I, this is totally random, but I want to know like, where can I get a copy of that, that the best translation that's mm. most affordable? Yeah. Okay. Um, so my recommendation for the best translation would be the, translation put out by New City Press, uh, and they title, they translate the title Expositions of the Psalms. I'm trying to see. I have the volume back there. Um, and it's in a number of volumes. There are maybe seven or eight volumes, so there's a lot of them. There may even be a volume of greatest hits, so to speak. I know, <laughs> I know New City Press puts out a hit like that, a, a list like that, um, of his sermons in called essential sermons. It's from like all yeah. of Augustine's sermons, choosing some of the highlights, but yes, I wouldn't, I would recommend the new city press translations. Okay. Those are really good and they're cool. available in paperback as well as hardback. Yeah. I've got one of, I, I've got the new city press, essential Augustine sermons, I think, mm, uh, I, though apparently I need to go read it. So I, <laughs> <laughs> it's been sitting on my shelf oh. uh, and I have not gotten to it admittedly. So, <laughs> When when I think about Augustine and the will, uh, the other concept that I, I would love to hear a little bit about is just the Holy Spirit's role in, in the will. Um, I am much more, I, I guess my research and stuff has been in philosophy. And one of the things that really got me interested at the beginning of it was sort of 
Alvin Plantiga's work. Mm. Um, and interestingly how he sort of like has this concept or it seems to fit like hand in glove with the Holy Spirit sort of like playing a, a key, crucial role. So I've always found mm. it very interesting to think about the Spirit's role mm. in just our ability to know things and our ability to will mm. rightly. Mm. Uh, so I'd love to hear what Augustine's take is on that and how that might be an, anticipating later developments. Cause I think of somebody like Calvin, mm. he seems to have a pretty strong account of you need the spirit to be working in order to know various things, tr- spiritual truths. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I think, um, the Holy spirit is actually, absolutely indispensable to right willing in Augustine's account. We need an influx of love. We could say from the Holy Spirit, we could even also say as the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit for Augustine is love. So this is where his account of willing gets really personal, because it's not just God gives us this super juice or Kool-Aid, whatever, grace and pours it into our wills and then we can will well but it's god gives us god's very self in the holy spirit and that's what fills us and enables us to love god and live rightly that said it's not this romanticized view where in say the moment of baptism there's a renewal that's absolute and we don't have to struggle with sin from then on out Augustine has a very realistic account of how we will continue to struggle with sin throughout this life until the eschaton. But the Holy Spirit assists us in that. So I want to know practical advice from you. You mentioned about how the sort of seminar paper leads you into writing this book. I interact with quite a few, and a lot of a lot of them listen that are sort of like early career stage. They're either at the end of their PhD journey or they're recently graduated. They've written a bunch of seminar papers or they have stuff from their dissertation. They're thinking like, how do I go about getting this sort of stuff published? Do you have any recommendations or advice on how to take something that's like a seminar sort of style paper and making it useful? in a published format, whether that's in a journal or in a academic monograph of sorts? I guess the first piece of advice of advice would be even way out in advance as you're writing things for various requirements for a, um, a class or whatever, be thinking from the very get-go because that then just minimizes the work involved. But you could be thinking, say, you're taking a seminar on – or early Christian theology can be thinking about, okay, what's an area I'm interested in? What's a journal in which I might want to publish this essay? Think about what would be required for that. What kind of style of articles article is featured in that essay and write it with that in mind. Um, But then for folks in the more specific situation you're describing who have sort of a bunch of stuff, I would say, be bold, send it out. Um, Look at the, Try to get a sense of the ethos of differing journals and frame your essay at the beginning and the end in a way that connects with that ethos. Um, And then just give it a shot. You never know. Um, Don't be afraid to put your your work out there. I think sometimes people feel like to be published, something has to be infallible, that they're absolutely certain of everything in there. And I don't think that's how scholarly conversation works at all. We're in this together. Uh, just like 
you and I were having a back and forth in this conversation. Publishing is just a way of joining in the conversation um, and getting your stuff out there. And maybe someone will prove you wrong in some respect, then you can adjust and write back, write another article, building yeah. on what they said. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I would just offer a word of encouragement. Just get, don't hesitate to send your stuff out there. Um, <clears throat> do pay attention to framing it properly, mm. edit it so there aren't like really horrible grammatical mistakes that will turn people off right away. Um, in recent years, I've become one of the co-editors of the International Journal of Systematic Theology. And so it's really fun to read stuff that comes through with that. So I would say any listeners who have something relevant for the purview of our journal, we also publish things relating to various periods in the historical development of Christian theology, as long as they have sort of a constructive aim. I would love to see things submitted to our journal and get to consider them. We, we, we and I think most other journals are open to publishing work from graduate students for sure. We're we're interested in quality work wherever it comes from. So, yeah. And I tips. can testify <laughs> to that because our senior editor, Garrett Walden, had an pu essay published recently with Ooh. the International Journal of Systematic Theology. And he's a THM grad only. He's just a pastor. Not just a pastor. He's a pastor. He doesn't have a PhD, mm. um, but submitted mm. that and went through the process and was accepted. So yeah, if you're listening and you're not there yet, submit quality work and the opportunities are there. I do have one other question for you. In, th this is a little bit fun. Uh, in your mind, who's the most overrated and underrated theologian in, in the history of the church? <laughs> Ooh. Oh, okay. Well, um, maybe I'll answer this by going back a little earlier in time to what I'm currently researching. Cause I've spent a bunch of time this past year, reading um, Irenaeus and Justin Martyr. Mm. And both of those people have an amazing reputation, right? Um, but I was just really struck by, well, I'll start maybe with my more negative one first. Justin Martyr, certainly an amazing individual. But, you know, his, his for example, his doctrine of the Logospermaticos, yeah. it's it, like doctrinal manuals make such a big deal of this, but it's really, it's like this tiny little section that he says, and he really doesn't develop it at all. So I was quite shocked to like, as I was going back rereading his writings, this is not, he doesn't really run with this. I'm not sure. I think we might be making a mountain out of a molehill when it comes to at least this concept in his thinking. Um, and then Irenaeus, wow. Irenaeus against heresy. So beautiful, so profound, so relevant to today. Many of the apologetic arguments he he describes, it's like, wow, this this resonates as much now in the 21st century as I would imagine it did then. So, um, yeah, it's such a thick book, um, but and it and I think the title "Against Heresies" can turn people off because it yeah. sounds so negative and critical. So maybe that might be um, somewhat underrated. I don't think many people read that cover to cover today, but. I think it's quite an amazing book. Yeah, I'm still shocked at the level of detail that he describes his opponents <laughs> in. I'm like, that's true. <laughs> how is this even possible pre like technology mm. that you had the ability to mm. correct, like identify other people's ideas and arguments and mm. then describe them in such detail? I was mm. blown away mm. by his commitment to that and his mm. ability to do that, mm. given that's the lack of resources that mm. we have. 
That is a really good point, too, just formally about like what you were saying in the beginning of this podcast about yeah. the values of the podcast, that one would give that kind of careful attention to an interlocutor's arguments. Yeah. Oh, that's a really good point. So last thing I want to know is if people want to follow along with your future work, where's the best place to go? Is it your faculty webpage? Do you have a website? Do you have social media stuff that, that people can bug you with and be like, oh, let's share stuff? Where, where should they go? <laughs> oh, thank you for asking. Uh, I'm, I generally tend to stay away from social media. I, I am on academia.edu. I wouldn't say I'm super active on it, but I do have some of my work posted on there. And I very much welcome people to reach out to me per email. Um, but I do try to list, so my faculty webpage at Western Theological Seminary's website does list upcoming talks, and I try to keep a fairly current CV on there. And um, so basically that and academia and personal personal correspondence <laughs> Excellent. would be the best routes. Well, we're looking forward to the future work that you have. So if you're listening now well into the future, go Google, Amazon, whatever you need to do to find if uh, new books have dropped on Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and whoever else that you're researching now and get a copy of it there in the future. But in the meantime, I'll have a link to the Augustine and the Will volume, the paperback version, uh, that you can just click the link in the show notes and go directly there. You don't have to Google or anything. It's just right there for the taking. So go ahead, support people like Han Luen and the works that she's doing. Uh, it's, it's important to not only encourage those who are laboriously working on these things, but also to support them financially by investing in the research that they've done. So I encourage you to do that. And thanks for everybody for listening and tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on brunch for mom all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.